If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. A few years ago, a childhood friend of mine was murdered by her boyfriend as she attempted to escape from his abuse. Instead of being able to leave peacefully to start a new life, he shot her, fled, called his father, and then crashed his car before turning the gun on himself. She had young twin daughters. Her mother was and continues to be overwhelmed with grief. When I hugged her at the funeral, I couldn't believe she was able to stand, walk, or even smile. But she did, which showed incredible strength. What was even harder to believe was that this wasn't the first of her three children she had lost. Just a year and a half prior, her son had died. On top of that, she, the mother, had recently remarried, and that man's son had died only a few years before that. So between the two parents, they had lost three children, an unimaginable amount of loss and pain. For some reason, it seems to happen that way sometimes. People that have been dealt a nasty card continue to experience pain and tragedy over and over. I feel guilty when I realize the only losses I've gone through have been, for the most part, the expected ones. Grandparents, a few friends, several suicides by acquaintances. But I have friends and family members that seem to lose someone close to them every few months. An injustice handed out by an angry god, a test by a loving one, or perhaps just bad luck. Not a day goes by that I don't appreciate how lucky and privileged I am to have not been touched by a major tragedy. Knock on wood. And tragedy seems to have been the theme in Mary Stavick's life. Before she turned 60, there had been three children in her family that died before they reached 21 years of age. That loss never weakened her. In fact, it seems as though the more she pushed through the pain, the stronger she became. Mary's tenacity and fight to bring justice to her daughter was part of the reason her case was solved after 30 years. Today I'll be telling the story of Amanda Mandy Stavick and how DNA helped close her mysterious case. Siblings Brent, Lee, Molly, and Amanda Stavick were close, not just because they were related, but because they had to be there for each other after a difficult start to life. Living in Anchorage, Alaska, the divorce of Glenn and Mary Stavick rocked the kids' lives. After the breakup, the families stayed in the area. Then in 1975, the first of too many tragedies. In August of 1975, 16-year-old Brent had received permission from the Fort Richardson Army Base, located at the northeast edge of Anchorage, to do some hunting. 
That may sound unexpected. I certainly didn't know people could go hunt on an army base. But Fort Richardson, which has since merged with the Elmdorf Air Force Base and is now known as Joint Base Elmdorf-Richardson, has permitted it and many other activities for decades. In addition to hunting, JBER, as I'll be referring to it, is also home to a national cemetery, a state-owned fish hatchery, traditional training areas, a shootout basketball tournament, a local high school gym, and a sports arena. The 73,000-acre base has the expected rules for hunting, certain seasons, you need licensing, and gauge limits apply. Hunters may end up bagging waterfowl, fur animals, I'm assuming that would be like rabbits and foxes, moose, and bear, those last two having their own rules for weaponry. There is no trapping permitted, and all hunters are to take a basic hunter education course. Some of those rules have come into place in just the last few years. In the 1970s, it seemed you just had to ask someone in charge and they would give you the go-ahead, which was what teenager Brent did. But Brent didn't come home after that expedition. Maybe there was a naive perception of safety hunting on government land, being on the military base. Instead of Brent coming home, the police went to Mary's home to tell her the worst news imaginable. Her young son had been accidentally killed while hunting. Hearing hunting accident, you would think he had been shot once, maybe twice, by another hunter that mistook him for an animal. But that was far from the case. Brent Stavick was shot with 22 caliber bullets, and he was shot 17 times. What? 17 times? You know, like a hunting accident. Yeah, a real accident. That sounds right. Accurate. Not only does his murder remain unsolved, there is no information about it anywhere. What? I reached out to Alaskan records departments, the state troopers, and the base itself. All of my emails to the police were returned, and the base gave me the runaround. Mm -hmm. At first they said, talk to this person, then they said, just talk to the police. They would have handled it, not us. And then it was, all of our records were destroyed after the merge. That done sounds like a cover-up. Doesn't it, though? That one has me upset, and I'm actually going to submit it to... Uh, military murders podcast yes. because she was in the military and and knows what's up. Yeah. I can't find an obituary. I can't find a death certificate. I can't find that's haunting. Like, I can't imagine living my life knowing that information about someone I love. Yeah, I would never let it go. Yeah, never. And to just have them say, "Oh, it was a hunting accident." Yeah, you, you, real, you wouldn't real. shoot. What animal would you shoot even seventeen times? Yeah, that's cruel and inhumane. You'd have to have really bad aim. Yeah, I don't even think a bear needs to be shot that many times. No, and you would so. walk up and shoot it in its head. Right. Like that's how that works. So that's the mystery of that one. Ugh. On top of that, his death isn't even listed on the Alaska State Troopers Unsolved Cases, even though they have other cases listed that are even older than his. It doesn't come up in newspapers.com, and it's just odd that a brutal death on a military base would be buried. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's alarming. I don't know if that's odd. <laughs> yeah, it's not odd. <laughs> it's kind of expected, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. Or not to, surprising, to, I guess. Not like widespread, but there are definitely cases I've heard of that mm -hmm. have similar cover-ups. Yeah. And people are like, no, what happened? Yeah, and then they just get to say, oh, it was an accident. So then it's not listed. It's not anywhere. So how... There's no, there's nothing to go after because it's closed to them. And know? I assume they're like, well, it's for the greater good. Yeah. We don't need people knowing about this, but no. Yeah. 
Not long after Brent's murder, Mary moved herself and her three children to Washington, where she became a bus driver. Still wanting space and land, she wound up in the small town of Acme, Washington. She was happy to have found a home on a dead-end street a mile off the highway, with a driveway long enough where you could see the house from the street, but it would take a few hundred feet to reach it. Acme is located in Whatcom County in the furthest northwest corner of Washington. A 30-minute drive to the west would put you in Bellingham, the largest city in the county, that, fun fact, has an elevation of 69 feet. Even though Bellingham is only about 13 miles from Acme as the crow flies, Lake Whatcom and the lack of roads makes for a longer trip. A 30-minute drive north will have you at the Canadian border. Whatcom County itself is home to a population of 106,701 people, which is quite the growth since Mary moved there in the 70s when the county's pop was only 82,000. Mary had not only overcome a divorce and the loss of a child, she was now a single mother who was raising children that were dealing with the same losses. But she never took time to sulk or feel bad for herself. She had work to do. Her 7.5 acres needed to be tended to, as did her home. From chopping the firewood to managing the household, she powered through it all. The loss and grief wouldn't end with Brent. Just a year after his murder, Mandy's stepbrother, son of her father's new wife, Spencer Stavick, died in a boating accident in 1988. Spencer was just 20 years old when the accident took place on the Kenai River, the longest river in south-central Alaska. Mary and the kids loved living in Acme. Even though houses were sporadic and every neighbor had their own acreage between them, everyone knew everyone. Be it the families were friends or had just been in the area for generations, there wasn't much that happened in Acme that didn't become known to everyone else. The kids liked it there, too. They had grown up in the wild nature of Alaska, so the space of their new home was what they were already accustomed to. Amanda, or Mandy as she went by, kept her mother especially busy. As part of tending to the grass on the property, Mary would borrow the neighbor's cows. They would get fed for free. Her grass would be maintained. On one occasion, a moment that Mary shared on 2020 because she felt it perfectly described her daughter's fearlessness and troublemaking, Mandy gave her mother quite the scare. Borrowing a neighbor's cattle, Mary was surprised to see four bulls in her yard as opposed to the usual five or six cows. Looking out at the four huge bulls that were going to town on her grass, she then saw her tiny four-year-old Mandy wander into the yard and, because of her stature, sneak right under the electric fence so she could join the bulls in the field. Expecting the worst, Mary raced after her daughter, but was shocked to see that the second Mandy was near the 2,000-pound animals, they froze in her presence. Mary was able to scoop her up before Mandy got to petting them and left the bulls to their meal feeling shocked that Mandy was unharmed. That sounds like me as a child. Definitely. But that was how Mandy always was. She wanted to live life. She was outgoing, but not in a dateline way. She was really going out. She played every sport she could, even multiple a season. Baseball, softball, basketball, track, horseback riding. She played saxophone in the band, where the leader became a stand-in father figure. It wasn't that she was one to push limits, but she wanted to push her own limits. She wanted to know what life had to offer. She was tenacious and didn't want to take no for an answer. But even if she had to, she did it with a smile. In 1989, Mandy graduated from Mount Baker High School, which, due to the town's size, was about nine miles from her home. 
Before leaving for college in the fall, she and her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Rick, broke things off once more, even though he was already attending the same college. They had known each other since Rick was a high school sophomore and Mandy a freshman. They were each other's first love, always finding their way back to each other after each breakup. He was happy to have Mandy on his arm as he thought she was way out of his league. Then came the Thanksgiving break of 1989. Mandy was a freshman attending Central Washington University, 190 miles southeast of Acme. Returning home for the holiday, Mandy was in town and had brought her roommate Yoko with her. The ladies caught a ride with Mandy's ex, Rick. It was the day before Thanksgiving, Wednesday the 22nd, around 2 p.m. when Rick dropped the girls off at Mandy's family home. As is so often the case during holiday breaks, many of Mandy's friends were also home for the holiday. So she spent that first afternoon home hanging out with her friends and going to her former high school, watching the girls' basketball team practice. Thursday was Thanksgiving. Mandy enjoyed celebrations with her family, spending the entire day at home with them. On Friday, Mandy continued having family time, enjoying leftovers and laughter. Eventually, she and Yoko went on a walk before they went their separate ways for the day. They decided they would meet up later in the evening to hang out with some of Mandy's high school friends, Brad Gorham and Tom Bass. It was between 2 and 3 p.m. when Mandy decided to go for a jog. Not just because this was the 80s and jogging was having a moment, Mandy was just very athletic. Jogging almost daily was not unheard of for her, and she had a beautiful route. Leaving her house on Strand Road, she would stay on that path headed west. After a short bend in the road within the first half mile of her home, it was a straight shot to the Nooksack River. Reaching the river, she would turn around and run straight back home, in total a five-mile trip. She always had her German Shepherd Kyra with her, and today was no exception. She usually had her mother Mary with her as well, but today was different. With Mary's sister being in town for Thanksgiving, she had decided to stay home, continuing their visit instead of riding her bike alongside her daughter, a decision that she would regret for the rest of her life. Besides the road and a lot of farmland, the route had Mandy running past about 10 houses. One house was the home of her friend, Tom Bass, who she had planned on seeing in a few hours. Another, home to her brother's friend, where he happened to be playing that afternoon. In the window of time Mandy was expected to have been running, Lee, her brother, spotted her going past the house. A man named David was driving a truck and pulled into a driveway around 3 p.m. Then Mandy came running past his vehicle. A little while later, Lee went back home. After seeing where his sister had been on the road, he couldn't understand how he had returned home before she did. Mary didn't hesitate and jumped into action. Calling her friends in the area and neighbors that lived on the route, she started asking if anyone had seen Mandy. Maybe an old schoolmate crossed paths with her and they got distracted or went to meet up with someone. After the calls, Mary and Lee started walking the road looking for signs of Mandy, but there weren't any. Getting back home, they were soon greeted by Kyra, who found her way to the front porch, even though she was all alone. It was clear right away something had happened to Kyra as she had her tail tucked between her legs, was cowering at the family, and her back end was covered in river silt. Hearing Mandy was missing, Brad, Tom, and Rick went to the house to see how they could help. At 5.30, three hours after she left for her run, Mary called the police to report Mandy missing. Responding to her call was the sheriff, search and rescue of Whatcom County, and Joel Harden, a Border Patrol human tracker. 
By the end of this very Black Friday, hundreds of people knew about Mandy and were already doing what they could to help. When Mandy didn't come home that night and the search efforts rolled into day two, it was clear to everyone something really bad had happened. Either she was really hurt and couldn't reach help, or someone else had done something to her. The trackers met with the family to find out all they could about Mandy and her jogging habits. Following the road, her tracks were found. They also discovered Kyra's paw prints. They both came to a stop in the same place. There was no sign of a scuffle or a fight in the dirt, but there were some disturbances. It looked like there was someone walking around or wrestling around or something, and the grass near the end of the trail had also been disturbed. The idea of multiple people abducting her was ruled out, so perhaps it was someone who knew her and could have talked her into getting into the car, or they simply grabbed her swiftly. It also helped to explain Kyra's behavior and muddiness. Perhaps she had been hit or even kicked into the ditch at the side of the road, keeping her from protecting Mandy. Day two saw even more searchers joining the efforts. They were on foot, horseback, in helicopters, on boats, motorcycles, and four-wheel drive vehicles. They sent out dogs and officers went door to door asking anyone for any information they might have. Then came a heart-dropping discovery. Going off a small road to a gravel road covered with leaves, searchers found teal sweatpants. This was alarming as it was believed Mandy had been wearing a light sweatshirt, teal sweatpants, Reeboks, socks, and a Walkman when she left the house. The pants were a mess and it was hard to tell if they could have belonged to Mandy. When police took Mary to the scene, she couldn't be sure that they were hers. The first thing she noticed was how dirty and torn they were. Mandy never would have left the house dressed in pants with holes and dirt. Mary couldn't bring herself to think that they had been Mandy's and that she could have been in some sort of physical altercation. Her second reason was because she couldn't be positive that that was the color of pants Mandy had been wearing that day. She hadn't paid that close attention to it before she left for the jog. Eventually, the pants were tested and, due to fibers and semen found, they were ruled out as being Mandy's. The search continued through the holiday weekend. Then on Monday, searchers at the South Fork of the Nooksack River saw something on the edge that caught their eye. Making their way to the shallow, debris-riddled bend, they found the nude body of a young woman. She was wearing only her Reebok sneakers and socks. Her blonde hair floated ominously among the trash and branches that had held her body in place, keeping it from floating any further than the six miles she had already gone. The cold temperature had kept her body intact, so much so that when officers reached her and turned her over, they knew right away it was Mandy. Her face was so at peace they felt they could have simply jostled her awake. One officer said the case had stayed with him for decades because he had a daughter the same age as Mandy when this happened, and he couldn't help but see her in Mandy. Which is why representation in police bureaus matter. Not everyone has the empathy needed to see someone they love in victims when they don't look like them. Because the abduction took place on Strand Road and her body was found six miles down the river, an official crime scene and point of entry to the river could never be concluded. Going to autopsy, there were no defensive wounds on Mandy's body, including her fingernails being clean of any outside DNA. So they ruled out the pants being Mandy's because there was semen on them. There was semen and there were other fibers. So I don't know if there was like a hair that was a woman's hair or... Are they really ruled out or do we find out later they are actually hers? 
They were ruled out from what I, everything I found, they were just kind of ruled huh. out. But with finding her body and being nude, it's kind of like, yeah, that's couldn't what, they be? That's where my mind went. Yeah. So I think that's one of those things where maybe kind of moot to the investigation or something, but um, definitely confusing because it's like, well, that could have been hers. But she was covered in parallel scratches. Hmm. Because the scratches took place while she was still alive, the linear nature of them, and even though her legs, arms, and buttocks were covered in them, it appeared they happened to her while she was running. And since the area was swarming with blackberry bushes, the only reasonable conclusion detectives could come up with was that at some point during her attack, Mandy escaped the clutches of her kidnapper. Mm -hmm. Running as fast as she could, she didn't care that her legs were being torn up by the thorns of the bushes. There were no signs of her having been tied up or strangled. She did have one injury, though, a blunt force trauma wound to the right side of her forehead. It was unclear if the strike would have knocked her unconscious, but it was possible, and it would have definitely caused a significant concussion. So what I'm thinking is somebody had a gun... Mm. because if she's not physically harmed at that point, mm. she would be listening to what they're saying. She's unclothed. She gets away. She's running. They maybe catch up and hit her in the head with the butt of the gun. That's a good theory. I hadn't thought of a gun because that would, yeah, without having to be physical, that would force someone to follow your directions. Right. And I might be out of order. Maybe they hit her with the butt of the gun and then she got away. No, I think that's a totally fair theory or even like a really um, heavy handled knife. Yeah. Like something that you don't have to use, but it it, it puts that control. Well, a knife would make sense too because it's not going to harm her if she's running away. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because a gun you would think like the person would maybe get so scared that she would escape and she was a good runner. She jogged like every day. She was very athletic. Mm. And so you would think maybe they would shoot, but... Or or maybe maybe not. They were worried. Yeah, they were worried somebody would hear it yeah but But that's a good theory it's got to be something that scared her enough that she would listen to what they said yeah because of the blood pool it was determined that right before mandy died she was struck in the head before being placed face down in the river to drown piecing it together with the scratches and the semen found inside of her body detectives felt mandy was taken raped and then she tried to run away before the killer caught up with her struck her in the head and placed her in the water She then floated upriver until the logs and bend held her in place. She had last eaten around noon the day she was taken and had died within three to four hours of that meal. So her murder happened very quickly after she had disappeared on her 3 p.m. run. When it came to the semen recovered, the sperm count showed that whatever the sexual encounter was, it happened no more than 12 hours before her death. So this would have had to have occurred between 3 a.m. the morning after Thanksgiving, Mm. meaning she would sneak past her family and friends to go meet up with someone before being back for breakfast where she was seen with her family and where she remained until her run at 3, which could have been the other time she had sex with someone. But the odds of her sneaking off to have sex during her run all before she was taken and killed seems unlikely. Even though it was 1989 and the correlation between crime scenes and DNA was in its infancy, a detective, Ron Peterson, had just so happened to recently return home from a DNA training at Quantico. There, they talked about how the future of crime solving would be DNA. So he insisted the DNA sample was not only saved, but sent to the FBI to create a profile. A profile would be good to have, but it was of no use unless they had a sample to compare it to. Meanwhile, Mandy's family was being dealt the blow of losing another child. 
another sibling. Mary had known all along her daughter was gone, attributing it to a mother's intuition from a mother who had already felt that pain. When Molly, Mandy's sister, was told the news, she ran out of the house, screaming and cursing at God. Mary then told Rick, the boyfriend. He was heartbroken. He saved a teddy bear of Mandy's that he held on to until her scent was gone from it. He wasn't just a devastated lover, he was very quickly a suspect. Taken in for questioning and fingerprints, he was not only cooperative, he was happy to be there. He knew that in cases like this, the partner or the people closest to the victim are the ones that should be looked at as suspects, so he felt the police were taking the investigation seriously. Besides the heartbreak, the family was shocked and confused to hear the cause of death had been ruled a drowning. But Mandy was not just a strong swimmer, she was a lifeguard. Even if she couldn't swim, the waters she ended up in were only knee-high. So if she had been able to, she would have just stood up. Coupling that with the fact that there was no dirt under Mandy's nails and no disturbances to the riverbed, it was obvious she had not been coherent when she was put in the water, and the real cause of death was homicide. Yeah, and I'm guessing they were frustrated that the police were not marking it as such. So they did, and I don't mean for that to be confusing. So they did mark it as homicide. They knew it was a homicide when they found her, especially being nude oh, and, okay. and all of that. So they did know that, but they were like, wait, how could the cause be drowning? Like that was just so, like like for me, I'm an avid swimmer and I'm a good swimmer and you wouldn't think that you would hear that I would drown. So it was like, what led to that if it's homicide how do you end up drowning in homicide look was she held down was oh she... yeah she was knocked out yeah exactly so it was like yeah so they that that way the family knew like something else had to have happened because yeah. even if she had escaped she didn't like escape and try to swim away no i, I she think would have they been caught to up swim. to her hit her yeah. she went under they put her in the water exactly yeah when it came time for Mandy to be laid to rest, there was no church in the area large enough to hold all of the people that wanted to pay their respects. So her high school auditorium held the event, hosting over 1,000 mourners. The town as a whole was in pain. They lost a beloved member of the community in a horrific fashion. The killer was still on the loose. The illusion of safety Acme had, leaving their doors unlocked because everyone knew everyone, was shattered. On top of that, Having the murderer free left them all wondering every time they talked with someone at the market or passed by a neighbor on the road, was that the killer? Investigators had a few people they wanted to speak to about Mandy. One was the neighbor who had been driving in the area and claimed to have seen her jog past him. When they spoke to him, he said he saw her pass and saw a truck. It was dark. And that was it. He couldn't really say the exact color, a make or model, or even give a guess at a driver's description. This seems strange and perhaps concerning to detectives. Even more of a red flag was when he refused to give a DNA sample. Uh After a court ordered it, the sample was given, but it was not a match, and he was soon cleared. Right? Didn't see that coming. I don't know how you ever say no. I guess if you... If you don't trust trust, the police, if you don't trust the government, and we know... In that era, there's a lot of them. That would probably be really bizarre to have people be like, we need your blood because we can match you to this. You'd probably be offended. And it's 89, so it's not like it's, it's not everywhere like it is now where it's like, oh, CSI, DNA, everything. You'd be like, you're going to do what now? The average person doesn't understand that process at that point. It's not on TV. It's not talked about unless you are a scientist. Yeah. So I guess that does make a little more sense. 
Still it, fishy, though. Yeah, it's still like, mm. <laughs> Another man questioned was the local drug dealer. He was interviewed and claimed to have casually mentioned he knew who the killer was. Okay. He, too, was cleared and nothing came from the information provided. At least, not back then. A tip line was set up and a $1,000 reward was offered for information that led to the arrest of the assailant. This, along with the support of the community and frequent stories on the local news, led to hundreds of tips coming in, all of which were followed up on. Reaching out to the FBI, a profiler expected the responsible party to be someone already in the community, not a stranger. At the same time of Mandy's water-based death, the Green River Killer was on a murder spree in the area. At the time, he was believed to be responsible for 28 murders. His typical M.O. was to find a woman on the street, usually a sex worker, and to dump the body in or around the Green River. While Mandy was young and fit the physical description of a victim and had ended up in water, this was a different river, in a different area, and very different circumstances. After the Green River Task Force looked through the case file, he was ruled out. The case was never not being worked on or forgotten about by the officers who worked on it or the members of the community. But with no DNA match or viable suspects, it went cold. Sure, there were suspects on and off throughout the years, but no one could be nailed down. There was still media attention with each passing year, another anniversary, another memorial. Revisiting the case in 2009, newly assigned Detective Bowie went through the 4,000 pages of case documents and started his new investigation by going to Mount Baker High, checking again with friends and teachers, but there was nothing new. Even though Mandy had been killed 20 years earlier, Bowie was determined to solve it, so he went to Cambodia to have another talk with the man who had been the local drug dealer back in the day. He no longer knew who had killed Mandy, and his DNA was not a match. That's when an unprecedented decision was made, to do a sweep of DNA collections for Ooh. any male that lived in the area at the time of the murder oh and God. that fit the appropriate age range for the semen recovered. This was inspired by the Linda Mann and Don Ashworth case in the United Kingdom. I'll tell you more about that case right after this short break. Part of me thinks everyone's DNA should be on file. And I know that, yeah. that a lot of people don't agree with that. But when it comes to crime and keeping people safe. I agree and don't agree. I know. Like, I know the arguments to why I don't really want that. Right. But, you know, when we talk about cases like this, I'm like, God, it could have been solved ages ago. And I feel like if you did even just one city, if you did all of Portland, you would close so many cases. So many. But it's also... You know, as we've seen, as we'll talk about in this case in a little bit, and we've seen in other cases that so often DNA can be, the defense can twist it to sure. say like, well, oh no, I we worked together, so I was around and it's her. Not, or, it's not black and white. It's not, yeah. um, you can have parts of your DNA match other people too. Right. So it, it isn't as simple as, oh yeah, every fingerprint is different. There, but, There's a lot more to it. Boy, it would close a lot. I guess we can't do that. Darn. <sighs> Maybe when we're president. Oh, okay. It was all the way back in late November of 1983 when 15-year-old Linda Mann was returning home from an evening at her friend's house. 
She was on a commonly used footpath known to locals as Blackpath in Narborough, England, but she never made it home. When her midnight curfew came and went, her parents called the police to report her missing. There is a book on these cases called The Blooding, but I didn't get a chance to read it. I can't speak for the size of the search party that first night, but they didn't have to search for long. It was early the following morning, November 22nd, that a bicyclist came across a horrible sight. A young woman's body, partially undressed, face down on a grassy hill. Police arrived and quickly realized not only was this a crime scene, but this was the body of Linda. The once popular yet quiet schoolgirl who loved learning and her friends had been murdered. The crime scene itself didn't offer much in the way of evidence. Her shoes and clothes were strewn about, but that was about all they could find. It was in the autopsy that they recovered the piece of evidence that would eventually close the case. Since there were no marks on or in Lydia's body, it was clear she had been unconscious during the attack. The scarf she was wearing for warmth had been used as the murder weapon. And after she was killed, she was raped. Testing the sample, it was found the perpetrator had type A blood and a PTM1 plus enzyme profile. Information that was good to know, but didn't exactly pinpoint a suspect as that criteria fit about 10% of the male population in the area. Much like Acme, Washington, the small village was rocked by such a savage crime, leaving everyone shaken. Doors were suddenly locked, girls walked in groups. The investigation first looked into the neighboring building to where Lydia's body had been found. It was a psychiatric hospital. Could it have been an escaped patient? Could this theory be more 1980s? Given the nature of the crime and lack of evidence, it was hard to believe a patient could have snuck out, murdered a girl without leaving any evidence, and then gone back into the building without being noticed. So that was pretty quickly ruled out. Investigators soon thought this was an attack carried out by someone who was carrying themselves through life as though they were a normal guy, someone that would probably have a typical job with a typical wife and maybe even kids. While it was looking more and more like Linda's murder had been at the hands of a stranger, it was still hard for the villagers to wrap their heads around the idea. It seemed like everyone was on board to help solve the case. Thousands of people were questioned about Linda and her whereabouts the night of her death. But even with the passion and drive by the police to solve the case, their experience dealing with cases of such magnitude was lacking, which left them struggling. Hoping to catch the killer as a revisitor, they set up officers to spy on and even film Linda's funeral, keeping an eye out for anyone who looked out of place. That was a great idea, but it didn't lead to anything. Neither did any of the tips that came in or any of the interviews with residents. The investigation quickly came to a halt, and before anyone knew it, it had been a month, then a year. Soon, the memory of her story fell from the news and from the memories of those who lived it, and life returned to the perceived peaceful existence it once was in Narborough. It was July 31, 1986, when all of those suppressed fears would be ripped to the surface. Fifteen-year-old Don Ashworth was walking home from work. Instead of taking her usual route, she, at some point, took a shortcut and wound up on 10-pound lane. But the only thing that would be cut short was her life. Her family was worried as soon as she didn't come home from work, so by 9.30 p.m., the police were called. It wasn't lost on anyone how similar Dawn's case already was to Linda's. This time, it was two days before they would find Dawn's body. 
Instead of on a lawn, she was found under some shrubs and brush, and it was less than a mile from where Linda had been found. Also like Linda, Don had been strangled and raped. Unlike Linda, Don was nude and did show injuries. She hadn't been lucky enough to be unconscious during the attack, and even though it was clearly violent, she fought like hell and had been beaten up in return. The rape provided another semen sample, and to no one's surprise, it was from someone with the same blood and enzyme profile as Linda's killer. Between the girls' ages, use of footpaths, strangulations, body locations, rapes, and that they had even attended the same school, there was no doubt with the police that the girls were killed by the same man. History repeated itself, and the villagers were once again left wondering who would be next. The warnings about walking alone and going out were like a deja vu from hell. Another difference between Linda's case and Dawn's was that within a week of discovering her body, they had a suspect in custody. It was Richard Buckman. He was a 17-year-old boy who worked in the psychiatric hospital's kitchen. Not only did his job put him right at the locations of the crimes, there was a witness who had claimed to see him on the 10-pound lane the day of Dawn's murder. Officials brought Richard in for questioning, and after 15 hours of interrogating a teenager with reported learning difficulties, they felt they had their man. Not only did Richard know things about Don's body that had not been made public, he was known by peers as the weird kid, who would do things like jump out and scare girls when they were walking down the sidewalk. He didn't have an alibi for the night in question, and eventually, he outright confessed to killing her. But as for Linda, he denied having any involvement. In 1984, one year after Linda's death and two years before Dawn's, the DNA fingerprint was discovered by Dr. Alec Jeffries at a university just a few miles from where the girls were killed. So in 1986, armed with two samples, police asked Dr. Jeffries to use his newfangled discovery, not for parental or immigration needs, as he expected to use it, but for crime fighting. They asked him to compare the DNA of what was found on the girls to Richard's. When they got the results, they couldn't believe it. Richard had given a false confession, an idea much less understood at the time than DNA. He wasn't a match. He had not killed or raped either girl. That's not something I'm terribly surprised by, considering he may have had learning difficulties and probably had many, many hours of interrogation. Yeah, they had him for a long stretch of time, and he there were were some reports that he had some sort of cognitive delay. I feel like false confessions are just now being talked about, let alone taken as seriously as they should be. More advocates for especially people who may not understand Mm -hmm. what's happening. Yeah. So for 40 years ago, it's like, oh, he did it. Okay, he said he he said he did. But at, at the same time, you can see how that pressure might get to them when everyone's terrified of this person uh-huh. on the loose and they have a likely suspect. They just want to get him behind mm-hmm. bars so everyone feels safer. Yeah. Well, and even if he didn't have cognitive issues, if I was 17 and a cop was like in my face and, and keeping me in a room and talking about this for hours and hours, I think anyone would crack, even as an adult. So mm. we've seen it. We've seen it happen. We have. The Forensic Files episode I watched for this case from back when it was called Medical Detectives was so old, and I remember watching it when it first aired, and they just walk you through step by step every process to explain 
the process of DNA because it was so revolutionary. Not like now where, you know, all of the lab work and everything, even though it's like a bastardized version, is shown on pretty much every primetime TV show. It was just kind of cute. <laughs> Do you remember when it was called Medical Detectives? No, I didn't watch it. Oh, my gosh. I had totally forgotten it. And of course, this one episode is not streaming. And so I had to find it on YouTube and it came. I was like, wait, this music is a little different. Oh, my God. And it was like Medical Detectives. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't know what Forensic Files was till college. Oh, gosh. It got me through middle school. It took a little time, but eventually Richard was the first man to ever be exonerated for murder by DNA, saving his life, or at the very least, his freedom. It took a little time to clear Richard because the detectives, and even Dr. Jeffries a little bit, didn't fully trust this new DNA system. They just couldn't accept that this guy wasn't a match, so they ran the tests over and over. But it was clear that the science was right. The only way detectives could account for the information about her body and clothing was that Richard worked in the area and he simply must have seen the body before the police found it and he just didn't report it. It was that dead end that brought a stroke of problem-solving genius. Detectives didn't know who they were looking for so there couldn't be a manhunt, but they did know what DNA they were looking for. So why not have a DNA hunt? In a never-before-done exercise, the police sent out letters to all of the men in the area who may have fit some of the criteria of the DNA. At first, it was 2,000 letters requesting the men come in for voluntary blood draw. Eventually, though, the police tested 5,000 men, and they still didn't have a match. Then, a year after Don's murder, a woman was at a local pub when she overheard a strange and alarming conversation. A man, Ian Kelly, was bragging to his friends about how he had gone into town to give a blood sample on behalf of his friend. That dirty bastard. When the woman realized that the man was talking about the DNA sweep, she knew something was up with whomever had asked him to sub for him. So she called it into the task force. You know why? Because eavesdropping and tattletelling saves lives. I like to think so. I do too. That way I can <laughs> keep doing it all the time. Finding Ian, they asked him about his part in the blood sample. Well, he had a friend, Colin Pitchfork, who had asked him to go to give the sample in his name. His reasoning? Colin claimed to have a friend who had a criminal background, so he didn't want to go in and get arrested. So Colin went for that guy. Mm -hmm. And since Colin had already gone, he would need his friend Ian, who lived far enough away to not be on the letter list, to go in for him. And Ian bought that idiot like why would you stop and think this seems suspicious <laughs> I, well i mean haven't we all done things for friends or no, family that you i would never do that i'm that sorry you're like oh i'm just picking up this thing i don't know i'm not peeing in a cup for you either no i'm not gonna pee in a cup but yeah sweet little ian i don't know why he wasn't like that doesn't make sense not naivete or like, maybe the friend of the friend was the guy who did it. No, he was just like, I'll help you. Those British, they're too nice. That's what it mm. is. To go through with it, Ian went and got a passport photo and gave it to Colin. Colin then used his ID to put Ian's face in lieu of his. With the fake ID in hand, Ian gave the blood, checking Colin off of the list and keeping any secrets from getting out. That was until the little overheard conversation. 
Looking into Colin Pitchfork, police found he was already in their system as he had a little issue with indecent exposure. He had crossed paths with Ian while working at a bakery. Please keep that profession in mind for when we get back to the other story. Mm. In September 1987, Colin was brought in for questioning. He wasn't a scientist, but he had been keeping up with the news, probably for personal reasons, and knew that DNA was not only reliable, but if he was a match, which he knew he would be, there would be no defense. So he did the decent thing and confessed to both killings. He knew he would have been a match, which was why he had Ian go in his place. Collins was the final blood test to be run, and it was a match for both girls. And just as predicted, Colin was 27 years old and married to a social worker. They had two kids. His wife was completely unaware as to who he really was. I wondered if that was going to be accurate. It feels like it always is. It is. You know, they really do fit those profiles pretty Mm -hmm. well. While the sweep itself didn't catch him directly, it did lead to his eventual capture. For his part in the cover-up, Ian Kelly was charged with conspiracy and given an 18-month sentence. It was suspended, and he never served any time. Which I think is okay. I think it's fine. I just hope he he learned a lesson. Yeah, I don't know if he just wasn't working with all of his intelligence or was just being too good of a friend, but... yeah. I mean, and look at this Colin guy. He's married, has a job, has kids, like no one suspects anything. So he probably has that charm that we always hear about. And it's just like, oh, hey, buddy, would you do me a favor? But you know, if somebody asks you to sit in on a SAT or a DNA test, no. If you have to get a passport photo for something, bad news, <laughs> unless it's your own passport. Colin Pitchfork was the first man convicted of murder with the use of DNA, and he was sentenced to life. Then it was changed to 30 years. Then, in an appeal in 2009, it was reduced to 28. Of course it was. While he had been denied parole in 2016 and 18, Colin Pitchfork, the murderer and rapist of two teenage girls, was granted parole. The board finding he was no longer a danger to the public. Did he still have a penis? (laughs) It took less than a month for reports of him behaving in a way that went against one of his 35 conditions of parole— by approaching young women. He was then returned to prison. Good. To say, like, he's not a danger to the public, he hasn't been in public. So how can you think that? Have you heard they're letting that Portland rapist out soon? No. I think think one of us might have to cover that case soon, but he's about to get let out. What, he's a serial rapist? Yep, like the biggest one we've had (sighs) here. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name. Um, Here's the thing. Like, he hasn't had his uh, psychological testing done recently. And the last time he had it done, they said he was a threat. So how is he all of a sudden But now they're like, he's parole? scheduled to go? Mm-hmm. This is the jogger rapist, yes. Richard Gilmore. Yes. Wow. That's, I don't think we... Oh, he's been in jail for 36 years? Yeah, he's wow. been there a while. But Are they like, hoping that he's just too old or something? But he's not. He's not. Yeah, he's probably like, what, in his 50s, early 60s? He looks... Fine, like pretty yeah, fine he looks, health. He looks fit. Yeah. So I think it's concerning. Mm, and like he that. will be monitored, but still we've seen it all the time. Uh-huh. And those the I mean, don't even get me started on the parole system. Like they're as overrun and understaffed as like child welfare. Like you how if you're assigned fifty people in a week, how can you do more than like a phone call or a quick drive by the house? You're not gonna be able to to know what they're doing with their lives. They're just waiting for something else to happen. Yeah. 
In regards to Colin's freedom, Kath Eastwood, Linda's mother, said Colin should never be freed. Quote, he shouldn't even be breathing and should at least be locked up forever. Linda's father is too ill from Parkinson's to know what's happening. Another hearing for Colin Pitchfork will be taking place sometime in the next few weeks. The hearing may result in either refusing his release, granting him release, or a recommendation that he be moved to a less secure prison or home. So we'll be keeping an eye out on that one. And that's the case that inspired the police in Acme to do a DNA sweep of their own. Even the cases were similar. Local girls on a walk of sorts sexually attacked and killed. Perhaps they would have the same luck with the sweep and narrow it down to the man who lived in town and committed the crimes. Next week, I'll be telling you the conclusion of Mandy's story, how DNA came to the rescue once again. But would it make for as much of an open and shut case for the prosecutors in Acme? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, I just was fantasizing about us starting our own town, uh, DNAville, where you have to <laughs> submit your DNA in order to live there, and it will be a utopia. Yeah, I like that idea. How has nobody done that yet? Uh, it's creepy, <laughs> maybe. Costs a lot. Think about the media you could have, like, no crime here, just. I don't know. And if you cry and we catch you immediately, <laughs> it's almost Minority Report. Not quite. Yeah, I don't know if people would want to live there or if anyone that I think had somebody ev- would. But if anyone that had ever committed any kind of crime. Like, Fine, like you if won't I, have them in. If I ever did anything, I wouldn't live there. So I guess you would be It'd inherently be safer. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Who needs a gated community? And what's the legal issue with this? I wonder, like, let's find out because there's got to be well, something. It's by option. Yeah. If it's like a HOA and you yeah. are opting in for it. You don't have to pay to have us do your yard. You have to pay in DNA. I, I like it. I, I don't <laughs> see a problem with this. <laughs> it's true, though. You never know. Oh, this sounds like a great horror movie too where it starts off like the safest neighborhood we guard your dna kind of a thing and then you find out they're using your dna for something oh i like that making like duplicates of people oh now we're getting into cloning yeah i'm getting i'm gonna write this oh please do copywritten (laughs) trademarked (laughs) don't steal my idea (laughs) anyway i thought that was fascinating that back in 83 well by then it was uh later in the 80s but that they were like okay we're just gonna test everybody and that in a roundabout way, it actually worked. Yeah. And I'm kind of surprised I don't hear of that more often. I don't know if that's like really common now. And so it's not something you hear about or if it's so rare, you just don't hear about well, it. Well, I would love to talk to a lawyer and see what kind of legal battles there would be for the government wanting to do this. So yeah. just think of all like if it was a big city like Portland, think of all the cases you might be able to close. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at any just given Just little moment, things, like we have so many shootings, and I'm sure that they have found some DNA in, uh, at some of those, but they just don't have the people This is costly. It's a very expensive yeah. thing to do to test a lot of people. But we have all that pot money. <laughs> I keep waiting for those taxes to pay off something. Yeah. Maybe it's to do a get, DNA sweep. Or get like AC in the in the uh, elementary schools or something. (laughs) That too. (laughs) It's horrible. Yeah, it is. Anyway, that's it on the case. I don't know if you had anything on that. Uh, No, I mean, I have a lot. I'm so excited to hear the conclusion. I have a lot of thoughts on what's going to happen. You're going to love the next person that comes into the case. 
you're you're going to be such a fan. You're just well, going to love him. I look forward to it. And I'm really happy that we're all back together in we the studio. We are back, including Josh, Josh, Mr. Beef himself. Waiting for a booty pinch. <laughs> Josh, can you give people an update post-heart surgery for anyone that missed information on September 6th? Josh had an aortic valve replacement, open heart surgery. And now we're back in the studio. Josh? I'm doing great. Thanks for that update. Wow. All right. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? Hmm. My chest hair. My chest hair is growing back. Yeah, that's exciting. Oh yeah. Uh, Would they have to weed whack that to get in there? I I had to watch. Here's what we said. You need to talk about this on bachelor dates. If you can't handle standing there watching your man get shaved with a little hand razor head to toe by some strange man with a long ponytail then you're not ready for love. Now, did you offer? Did you offer to step in and help? Oh, no. They ju- He just came in very, uh, he was a very nice man, and he seemed very happy to do that job. He, he enjoys his work? I think he, so. <laughs> yeah. I think so. He was just was right, he humming? Down, right down there with it. Yeah, basically, yes. While just chatting with yeah, us just about his away. wife. Good for him. Moving moving stuff around, getting all that It's kind of like people who are waxers for a living. Yeah. You see it so much, it's not abnormal. Yeah. You just go on with your conversation. Well, I didn't care for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Would you rather he had been awkward? Like, this is so <laughs> awkward. I'm going to be Or awkward. like petting, petting his leg before going like, oh, <laughs> so sorry to see you Or just do it when I fall go. asleep, when you put me to sleep Yeah, you shaved his face. Yeah. Why oh, can't that you was do that? a violation. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, they did that while you were asleep? I woke up with a handlebar mustache. Yeah. <laughs> and they probably thought it was hilarious. It, but it, and it was so badly shaved. It was so bad. Ugh. There were long ones. Like, Not that I'm at a salon or anything. Did they tell God. you, like, did they ask you to shave before you came in? No. No, they said we might have to trim your beard. Because <laughs> I was looking at some they surgery paperwork, did. and it's it was very clear, like, men need to cut their beard down no there was never Never. a mention that was the thing i told him i was like if you guys had said he could have just like done it nicely yeah trimmed it down to where at least looked that is nice it looked like he got drunk and turned out a bunch of kindergartners do it and took scissors to his face (laughs) he had strands that were as long as his beard had been and then other parts that were like bald it was it was truly shocking i turned that corner to see him in that bed but all in all, he's doing well. I am. I feel good. You look good. Get your heart checked. Thank you. Yeah, get your get your chart hacked, everybody. Yeah. How's your uh, scar? Is it healing up? <laughs> it looks really good. Yeah. Do you use any kind of ointment for that? No, I just scratch at it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you want to look manly. When it's real itchy, <laughs> he wants to be scarred. No, it looks good. I don't know why, but it's healing up really beautifully. Just a little, a little ziplock on my chest. Yeah. Nice. Well, we're glad to have you back. Thank you. Uh, people said things to me like get better, get well and stuff That while I was having surgery. That was nice. So thank you to those people. We just got a card actually in the mail from one of our listeners, Kelly. And it was very sweet. She sent a, a book that her husband had bought her. I read it yesterday. Oh, I think I, I think we'll do a Patreon episode of it. Oh, fun. Um, the Lady of the Lake. Oh. Anyway, uh, she had written in it that she hopes you're doing well and that we're her favorite podcast now. And that was very oh, exciting to get that in the mail. That's very sweet. It was very sweet. Yeah, we Thank had, you, Kelly. 
We had uh, a listener from our other show who sent us like movies and a card and stuff. So it's it been really, very cool. Yeah, everyone, it really was. really so much love. It. So, so much. Or do you do need it. a minute for your tum tum? No, it's it's fine. It'll be fine. Nair. You know I deal with it. Actually, I'll every day. Nair. Yeah, you should see a doctor, maybe. Well, when I get my stomach removed, I'll feel a lot better. That's true. Who won't? <laughs> we made some sort of comment about Josh's beard, and she goes, oh, "You're the guy with the beard," and we're like, "What?" And she goes. And you, you must have been the one that like panicked and threw your hands on your face. I was like, <laughs> I was. And she goes, we all came around that corner because he was on that corner room. And we all walked around and just couldn't believe who had done that to him and why. <laughs> and why you wouldn't just trim it or at least just shave it off oh instead God. of what they did. I was like, it was bad, right? She's like, it was very bad. I would like a I thicker beard. want it. Tubes. Oh. I saw somebody say that they're signing up because they saw that or they realized that the bloopers are like more extreme on <laughs> Patreon because we're afraid to air them on the regular one. Anything scream extreme goes to Patreon where That's we're appreciated. Right. <laughs> Having trouble with that door? A 30 minute drive north will have you at the Canadian border. <gasps> no. So he felt that the police were just doing a good job. Doing a good job. Bicyclist, bicyclist, bicyclist. You guys ever 69? Oh. What? <laughs> on, a, on a mountain? Why, yes, I have. Wow. Just kidding. 69 on a mountain? I don't know what 69 means. <laughs> <laughs> I plead the 69th. <laughs> Protect my sexual secrets. <laughs> Ooh. Welcome to Sexual, sexual Secrets. secrets. With co-hosts, I'm going to go with Red Rocket. And I'm Cindy Bartholomew. <laughs> I am Beef. Gross! Beef? Because he's so meaty. Oh, my God. Sometimes I'm embarrassed of us. <laughs> and by us. Don't be embarrassed for Beef. <laughs> Beef's doing just fine. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're grounded. Just like Beef. <laughs> My God! <laughs> I hope she liked the special special sauce. Well, the special sauce. It's Wait, you made keep saying special. Patreon. You know this is my biggie. No, but I think some of these jokes. I think sexual, be in it. whatever I called it, is definitely going to the That's people. Fine. They That's love fine. Sexual, sexual, sexual secrets. I feel like we need a podcast called Sexual Secrets, where people write in their secrets and we read them. <gasps> hey guys, Done. why don't you send us your sexual secrets? Oh, and I don't like it because it's going to be rotten stuff, like the stuff they used to do on the radio, which I know is fake now. We, can, but... we don't have to read the like rotten stuff. I used to stuff. fuck my couch. It's out. <laughs> <laughs> and then she just humped. And I'm like, what is she doing? <laughs> How old were you? Um, Sixth grade, seventh oh, okay. grade. Woo. Man, sometimes when you give an answer, it's just like so scary until you get to the end of the word. <laughs> yes. Six like, years sixth old. grade. Yeah. But I do. Still bad. <laughs> Sexual secrets. Are you laughing at my terrible edits? No, I was laughing at beef. Oh, <laughs> oh I love that.
Sorry I couldn't be there for butt pinches. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> but like, next year, I, I think I'll have an igloo cooler full of some yogurt. A gogurt store that you could get your own custom Oh my go-gurts. God, like the M&M store. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be cool. Wait, are we- <laughs> such, a- <laughs> such a convenient <laughs> snack. <laughs> it will be beautiful. And we could put fun sayings on them, like suck my balls. Suck my yogurt. Beef. <laughs> It's what's for dinner. Oh. Yep. God damn right it is. Oh my God. <laughs> sorry. You are loud. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> He's been itching to be back That's, on the mic. He hasn't been in here in a month and a half. <laughs> yeah. He's getting crazy. <laughs> you crazy son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> uh, good puzzle piecing detective work. <laughs> I love puzzles. Solid log dreams. Everyone, DNA and vasectomies <laughs> for all men. <laughs> Day one. <laughs> I don't think anyone will have a problem with that. <laughs> We're going to get a 100% vote. First time in history. <laughs> Perfect. Don't you come near beef with that laser. <laughs> <laughs> snip, snip beef. I didn't realize you were talking right now. I thought that was a recording. That is a recording. Oh, wait, that was? Yeah. I'm so confused. I don't like that. <laughs> That reminds me of a roommate who oh once God. went a little crazy with her razor in the shower. And she's oh. like, look, I'm a bald eagle. <laughs> oh, my God. It looked like she let a bunch of people like, OK, you get a trim. You get a trim. <laughs> Wait. So her bush was all over the place? It, she thought she was going to make a shape. And it turned out to oh. just be like a big bald spot in the middle. Oh. <laughs> of her bush? <laughs> it was so. I don't have a lot of French. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, maybe if you stopped insisting people call you beef. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at Patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my boss. <laughs> <laughs>